Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. I'm Matt Carpenter, and I'm pleased today to welcome Michael Warren Davis, who's recently written a book called The Reactionary Mind, Why Conservative Isn't Enough. Michael is a writer, which if you read the book, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly that he's a writer. He's not uh, someone, he's not a historian or a sociologist pretending to be a writer. He's been an editor at Crisis Magazine, the Catholic Herald Quadrant, and the American Conservative. He was a consistent writer there, as well as other publications. And now he is primarily on Substack. And I will include a link to his Substack. It is free and it is full of great information. But today we want to talk about his book, The Reactionary Mind. Mike, uh, thanks for joining us today. thank, Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So just to begin with, your title the uh, the term reactionary raises questions but then if that wasn't enough the subtitle why conservative isn't enough raises more questions so what is a reactionary and what makes it superior in your estimation to conservatism for christians like you and me and your listeners i'm sure uh the, the dilemma that we have uh, in the conservative movement is that there's nothing really left to conserve. Everything that we love has been discarded by our society. So the, the task of a Christian in the public sphere, or any one of traditional sensibilities really, the ta- our task now is not to preserve what already exists, because, you know, the the things that we love exist as a a fairly small remnant in our society and in our culture. Our goal is to reclaim, uh, and and to reclaim not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors who are, uh, who, you know, the people that are fighting against us now. Um, We're trying to fight, we're we're trying to to bring back the good life, not only for ourselves, um, but for everyone around us. And uh, I think that, when we call ourselves conservatives, we, we make the task, we, we, it's kind of like, we're kind of lying to ourselves. That's why I don't like it because it does give this impression that we're still living in the, you know, the, the, the shining city on the hill. And all we have to do is defend this, you know, that shining city from the, the barbarians that are at the gates, but that's not it at all. We are now, we're like St. Paul, right? After his conversion, hiding in the city, um, what, when they, everyone's, everyone's out to get us. So we, uh, yeah, that's, and this is what C.S. Lewis talks about, you know, uh, uh, we're in enemy occupied territory, um, and, and we're waging a guerrilla campaign to try to, uh, to, you know, bring about the reign of Christ the King. So that's why I just, I, I cannot, that's what, that's the main reason I just can't get on board with the, the label conservative anymore. Cause it does feel like lying to myself. You begin in the book with an opening support, and that, so that, that's one thing I want to say up front. Your book is not merely blasting anything post-1900 or post-1500 or, or anything. It's, it, it is building up and helping to, to balance out our poor view of much of what passes for history now. And you open with a discussion of the medievals and what many call the Dark Ages, which I think a lot of our listeners are already partial to the claim that those ages were not dark. But one thing I want to hone in on from the first chapter is your discussion of freedom. So when you talk about the modern def you contrast the modern definition of freedom with the older more fit description so 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 tell us about that what what is the modern definition of freedom and, and how does it contrast with the older 
uh, Christian definition? The modern definition of freedom, I think, and it, it is hard to summarize in a, in a sentence. I'm sorry if this is a little clumsy. Um, mo mo we moderns tend to associate the concept of freedom with the idea of choice. It's having as many choices as possible and being able to act on you know, our desire, on our, our, our preferred choice. Um, of course, that gets very complicated because in the modern world, you know, if you if you a woman chooses to be a housewife, that is not an acceptable choice. But the the whole, uh, but you know, at least in the in a general way, you know, choice is really what our society values, uh, and that's how it defines freedom. Whereas traditionally, uh, and this is you know from again Roman philosophers. Um, the, certainly this, and then certainly the scriptures. I mean, freedom is is uh, the the ancient philosophers would define freedom as uh, the ability to seek the good, and then the scriptures would define freedom as freedom from sin. Um, Saint Paul says this. You know, you you have to uh, you you no longer slaves to sin, so that you can be slaves to God. And this is to 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 the modern mind, this is insane, right? Um, this is this idea that to be you, you are free only to do the good and the modern mind says no i mean with it i mean you can say that but i mean if you're only free to do the good you're not really free and so there's the modern ideas of freedom implicitly is about the freedom to be evil um and uh and i think that you know this is but this is what saint paul means you know the freedom the freedom to be evil and i'm using scare quotes i don't know why your listeners can't see them but uh <laughs> The, uh, the the freedom to be evil is really not is really not freedom and I think anyone that's experienced um, God's grace and hell and has and anyone who whom God has allowed to overcome some besetting sin realizes that freedom from sin is really is the um, it's the freedom to to pursue what you know what we are what we the goods that God created us for. So I'm going to just keep rambling unless you stop me now. So let's, let's delve into this a little bit more. That, that's good. And, and so one of the full disclosure, I have highlights and underlining in the majority of the pages of your book and in some places, multiple spots. One of my favorite opening in, in your introduction, you say, you know, there's a word for people who only talk to their friends over the phone who have their clothes and their meals delivered right to their door and who bill everything to the government. They're called prisoners. That hit me because there, there are many people who, who that's what they think freedom is. They think I can talk to people on the phone. I can have everything I want delivered to my door. Isolation is the ideal for many and that is absolutely contrary to what aristotle and augustine and the best of ancient thinkers said about the purpose for which we are created yeah absolutely and i the scary thing is that I think that there are a lot of people who I could see someone I, I would really have to harass them on the street and make them read that page you know what I mean but if I could find you know some some you know probably someone I went to middle school with right and just say read this read this passage that you just read out and I can imagine someone replying to that and saying well then you know what maybe being a prisoner isn't so bad right and I th and this is kind of this is what really motivated me to write the book. I, I don't really care that much about conservative versus liberal or even the label reactionary. It's just it's frightening to me, as I'm sure it is to you. Not only how many people are unhappy, but how many people don't even know what would make them happy if they could try to be happy. Yeah. And, uh, and they, and I, I do think that if we, it's not like, it's not like that's a mic drop 
line, right? You and I, you can you can read that because I think we have uh, a certain kinship of mind and spirit, and um, <clears throat> we can recognize that that's bad. But there are most people I think today really wouldn't understand why, you know, Uber and uh, Uber Eats and welfare are not the the summum bonum, uh, and that's what's really frightening. So, you know, and even when it comes to this type of freedom, I'm, of course, people, listeners know I am a a Protestant, I'm Reformed pastor, you're a Roman Catholic, uh, faithful son of the church. And you include in the first chapter uh, a line from from the Baltimore Catechism is Roman Catholic catechism that again, many of us are not familiar with. But I was struck in this question and answer how similar this is with the Westminster, uh, with, with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question. So the Baltimore Catechism says, why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in heaven. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those two questions and answers are almost identical. And they, they, they both point to the purpose for which we were made. And, and so that, for me, is one reason I appreciated your writing. You're not... When people hear reactionary, they think, okay, so dude has an axe to grind and and, and, and we're going to just get all the, the powder from it and choke on it. So that, that's what a lot of people's writing when they're angry, that's what they do. But for, for, for you, you're not pushing people, as you just said, to take on a label. You know, in, at one point you say that the reactionary's motto, if he has one, is from First Peter two seventeen: honor all men, fear, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Well, that's that's been. I mean, I, I've told people before that is that is the purpose for which God made us. If you just if you take a verse from Scripture, that's it. When it comes to how, what is loving our neighbor and loving God look like, there you go. So. Anyway, um, no, I appreciate that. I, uh, I did get so one review from an old friend of mine, Tim Stanley, who's a, a British. Uh, he works for the Telegraph in the UK, and we worked together at the Catholic Herald. And he he did a very nice review of the book. But one of the things that he said is, you know, the the trouble is that you know you can't always be a reactionary, right? Because at some point, the reactionaries were the Jews and the Romans who were persecuting this, you know, this itinerant preacher named um, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And I, it's a point very well taken, and I, it has, I have tried, I have thought a lot about this since I read the review, and my next uh, book is is going to be shaped pretty heavily by that criticism. But I, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you singling that out, and I, uh, because I think that. At some at some level, yeah. All, all I really want is I, I don't have any uh, I don't have any wisdom to share with people off the you know off the top of my own head, but I do try to point them back to the to the scriptures and to the um, to the fathers of the church. There's this is why I love the Middle Ages is because um, it is a society. It is the only instance of you know a a a large number of um, predominantly Christian societies that are geographically contiguous. That's really the, all the Middle Ages are, right? Um, it's just a bunch of Christian countries that share borders. And um, and so Christianity is just the default for everything. Obviously, it's not perfect. It's, it's very frequently misapplied. But all the statecraft is at least aspiring to be Christian statecraft. All the music and the art, the architecture, the philosophy is all at least sort of if only by momentum or if only by habit pointing towards Christianity. And uh, so that's, I mean, that, that's the, that's what made, that's what excites me about history. And that's the, that's the tradition of Western civilization that excites me. I have to be honest, like the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, I have a lot of respect for, 
but it's not it's not what gets me out of bed in the morning and i don't like this attempt that a lot of conservatives do to say um like sir roger scruton who in many ways i respect a lot but who said um you know the the, the post enlightenment project what conservatives have to do is to find a non-transcendental source for our traditional values and uh, and i say no i mean that's what the greeks and romans tried to do but i say no as a christian i can't agree to that um, so that's another reason that I don't like the conservative uh, project. And uh, and it's another reason why I think that, yeah, I mean, it, fundamentally, I try to make everything that I write Christian and not reactionary. Yes, yes. And for many who don't like the idea of Christendom in the medieval era, the reason, the reason many don't like it, I think, is because they picture Christendom as... Pope whomever says this, and then 513 different provinces across Europe say, yes, sir, and may I have another? And I mean, that, so so that's, that's the, the mindset that we have, whereas you had a significant back and forth tension between magistrates and religious leaders, and it bred in many, because both were, even the magistrates, in many instances, they were trying to operate, as you said, their statecraft in a biblical way. But they were all—they were not idealists. They understood that that we there are certain limitations, and and it wasn't the papacy was not a monolithic governmental entity, which that's automatically how we think of that. You know what we think, president of the United States. And so if, if the president of the United States can do all these things, how much worse would it have been when a arch conservative or reactionary king or pope were to, you know, just, ha just to have the title, it must have been totalitarianism everywhere. When, if you don't have the capacity for enforcing dictates, and you, you talk about this, when you can't enforce every little thing, you many times will not even try. Yeah, this is, and I, I don't like people who use novels to illustrate points about politics and history because, you know, it's fiction. And as a rule, I don't do it. The one instance where I break that rule is, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, we, he called himself an anarcho-monarchist. And yeah. it doesn't really make sense unless... The thing is, if you read um, the Lord of the Rings and you read how the kingdoms of man are governed, and there are these, you know, there there's the king right in his castle, um, and then there he has all of his wardens and his armies and his soldiers. Um, but you think to yourself, you know, how did he how did he actually exercise power over his kingdom when he, you know, there's no there's no Facebook for the government to check up on. There's no, and, and this is, I mean, this is what the Middle Ages was like. I mean, there was no, there was no tyranny because there was no mechanism for tyranny. The state, the like state surveillance uh, as it exists now really came out of Napoleonic France. It wasn't, there wasn't even a police force. This is the thing that we, we there's so many things that we just, we project backwards onto history um, and we, and, and it, it just doesn't, it's not true. So this is the one thing that the, that, you know, the middle ages always gets flack for. We, we assume that um, because there was stronger authority, there was also the greater exercise of power. Uh, and it's, it's just the opposite. You know, the, the, the rulers had, the rulers did have more sort of moral authority. Um, they were, you know, there's Edward, the confessor versus Joe Biden. But there was, a, but there wasn't. But I mean, Joe Biden, I should say, Edward the Confessor, even Henry VIII, um, didn't have one one millionth of the power that Joe Biden has over us now. And people just, and I, people just don't get it. It's 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 hard to conceive of the decentralized nature of medieval society is one that is lost on most people when you consider, and I know uh, Dr. Brad Berger at Hillsdale, I've heard him talk about this many times, 
and he, he gets it from Christopher Dawson, that, you, I mean, if you were to walk from one end of medieval Europe, let's say from Normandy, what, what's, you know, Normandy to Constantinople, you would cross thousands of jurisdictions, not just hundreds, but you, I mean, you would cross because every, not only you had shires, you had, I mean, the, the monasteries had their own legal system. They were, and, and the churches did as well as independent city state, you know, all of these different things you have. And it forces you to live and to get along with other people. Yes, you can go to war and sometimes they did, but if you're a king, you can't just say, oh, I'm, I'm declare war now on so-and-so and all the knights immediately show up and say, thank you. Let's, you know, we're, we're, we're no, the knights come from somewhere. That, and so anyway, and again, you, you talk about all of this, you talk about the life of a, of a medieval serf, which is, when, when we think of that, the only, the only thing we can think of are no plumbing, no, de- no dentistry, and how miserable. But with all that said, and no, you're not saying, I mean, I'm looking inside your house right now. You have windows, you have, you know, <laughs> it's a modern house. You don't live in a hovel. So you're not saying we all need to go dig out houses and, and try to just re- really live like they did back in those days in every way. But there are many things we can learn, including how to treat those who are hard and faithful workers, but don't do, don't have all the educated uh, understanding of people with doctorate degrees. Yeah, this is why I do like the labor reactionary is because if we, if if we as a society, as a culture, as a civilization had lost anything, let's say, let's say that we hadn't, right? Let's say that this is actually, you know, the, the best of all possible realities, that this is no, no way of life is ever going to be better than it is the way, what we have right now. How would we know? How would we know if, if there was anything in the past of, that was a value that we had lost that we would want to get back? Was we as we just we as individuals and as a society don't have any memory. We don't know history, so I think that the 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 value of calling oneself a reactionary and the value of um, of talk, of praising medieval serfs, as you said, is not to inspire people to go out and live in a hole in the ground um, and get dysentery and die when they're you know eighteen. The point is to get people thinking about you know, to, to be thinking critically about modernity and about history and, uh, and trying to, trying to get back only the things that were good about the past, not the bad things. Obviously you don't want to take back the bad things. Having said that, the, the, the two things that people always, the reason that people hate medieval serfs is there's usually two things. There's, there's the chaos of, of the middle age of the sort of medieval political scene, um, and there's the Black Death, and not, which I point out, neither of which were the medievals' fault. The, there was, there was a the collapse of central author of central authority um, because of Roman decadence, and then there was, uh, you know, obviously the Black Death came from somewhere east of Constantinople, so that was the that was the merchant class mostly, you know, the uh, um, people that were far, far better off than the medieval serfs. So I always just have to put in that little plug because for some reason the medievals get blamed. The two things that the medievals get blamed for really were not their fault at all. Right. So in, in the first part of your book, you, you talk about various examples of reactionary thinking. You, uh, you know, you, some of the characters, uh, Savonarola, and then uh, Robert Bellarmine, and I may be mispronouncing his name. I'm not sure, but uh, but but you begin with the discussion of chivalry, 
and its application. So what is chivalry? Describe chivalry to us in a way that we can understand and what its application can be today. So chivalry is the best one word, one sentence definition I know is chivalry was the universal rule of life for uh, Christian lay people that evolved during the Middle Ages. The way that it evolved is that in the early church, you have Christians who are basically everywhere that they're living, we are a small persecuted minority. As the uh, as time goes on, and God's grace works, uh, the it, it's eventually there are whole you know whole countries, whole um, the nations and kingdoms that are converted to Christianity, and all of a sudden, in, in many parts in most of Europe, Christianity is a is almost has almost a monopoly on faith. So then there's this. So there's this difficult question that arises is how do you, you know, most of what our Lord's preaching is concerned with is, you know, getting to heaven and the, you know, the second coming, right? But there's, there's not, it's not really a comprehensive political ideology. George McDonald and, and George McDonald uh, says that this is, this is totally intentional. He says that Christ doesn't talk a lot about politics because politics doesn't really matter that much. Um, he says that, you know, our Lord could have come and been the one perfect king in history, but instead he chose to wash his disciples' feet. Um, and that's absolutely true. But at the same time, you know, if you're a king and you convert to Christianity, the question arises, you know, how do you rule as a Christian? And so, uh, and the same thing with soldiers, you know, if you are, uh, if you're a soldier and you convert to Christianity, how do you be a good Christian and a soldier? How do you soldier in a Christian way? And so chivalry is, uh, it, it evolves, it, it begins with a, uh, an attempt to, to explain how one can be a good Christian and a good soldier. But it turns out that the the rules of life that evolve out of that discussion um, really set the tone for all public life among the laity in the Middle Ages, and uh, and so what we're left with really is this: it is the the one almost totally comprehensive um, way of explaining how Christians should live in society in a predominantly Christian society. Talk to us about one of the characters I mentioned just a minute ago, uh, Savonarola. He has a, in some cases, a, a, a negative, he's negatively perceived. So Savonarola is, you know, most people, if they know of him at all, they think, oh, the book burner. So, who is Savonarola, and, and why is he a good example of someone who stood forth for what is good and right? It's interesting. This, there was a time in history not that long ago when Catholics and Protestants would fight over who gets to claim Savonarola. Uh, and now Catholics and Protestants kind of, they're always trying to pass him off on each other. Every not to mention, obviously, secular people. I mean, no one wants to touch Savonarola. It, but what's extraordinary is that he really is one of the great men of history, I think. And and I and there's a reason that our our fathers in the faith, both Catholic and Protestant, um, both admired him so much. And uh, and I think that is the mark of a of a real Christian hero is when he bridges that kind of denominational divide. Because what he, uh, Savonarola was not, you know, he was, uh, I think Protestants would accept that he, he was not very interested in challenging church authority um, on principle. And I would argue that he was actually quite loyal to the, the idea of, of the, the Catholic church's hierarchy. But what Savonarola did is, you know, he was born really at the, at the beginning of the, uh, of the Italian Renaissance. Um, or, you know, during probably well, really at its heyday. And, uh, and he looked around and he saw as a young man studying to be a doctor and saw that, uh, you know, Renaissance Italy and really all of Europe was being sucked into this, uh, into this moral 
and cultural, uh, you know, uh, filth really. I, 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 he used very visceral language, and uh, and he and he realized that there was that you know the the old medieval order was had fallen and, and Europe was succumbing to a new paganism, and he pointed out rightly that. Uh, that the church was leading the way in many of this, uh, in many instances, in this repaganization, and uh, that was the age of um, Alexander the Seventh, the um, Rodrigo Borgia. They made the board the HBO series, the Borgias. That's how everyone knows him now. Infam like the, the notoriously the worst pope that ever reigned by most people's accounts. Um, you know, made his children cardinals. Um, there's a legend that he used to um, he used to be carried through the streets of Rome, um, and uh, and would throw apples to orphans. But every once in a while, he would have a, a wooden ball painted red, so children would be and he would whip it the, the the wooden ball at children that were begging for food outside of the gate. He's just a bad guy. So the uh, yeah, so Savonarola comes along and he he starts you know he he starts preaching this very primitive this extremely extremely early church um version of christianity where he and uh and, and in a way that a lot of i think even traditional catholics would would find offensive um where he says you know the he says that the 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 liturgy um is not uh is not the is not what god you know wants of us is not the measure of christian faith and he has this whole list of things that are not in and what ultimately what he says is you know to live the gospels is the is the measure of christian faith and um and any you know cultural artifice that you build around that is ultimately a matter of indifference the only thing that matters is saving your soul and this is what we have to get oriented back on so this is um it's an interesting way of looking at the at the renaissance for us as christians i think because so much of the art is technically religious, um, but it is essentially pagan. It's pagan art that has Christian themes. And so what Savonarola does is, you know, he he urges his followers um, his, in Florence to uh, to voluntarily destroy the most of their, you know, their their most uh, what would you say their most risque clothing, um, their most offensive artworks. Um, as a Lenten penance, and so and and their obscene books. I mean, I don't want to get too explicit, but I mean, in in Renaissance Italy, it was very common for the wealthy um, to keep pornographic books, to have explicitly pornographic paintings hung in their bedrooms. Um, so th so when he so when we talk about Savonarola burning books, he <clears throat> excuse me. He wasn't ordering his followers to ransack people's houses and burn all of their books. He was inviting people to take the equivalent of their Playboy and Hustler magazines and burn them in the streets as a sign of public penance. It was a very rambling answer, but I love Savonarola, and uh, and if I did nothing in my life but you know try to get a couple of people to keep his memory alive, I would be happy. Well, I know the first place I was exposed to him was actually from a Protestant book on faithful men in the history of the church and he was given a chapter in that book and that statement you made about him saying that it's, it's not the most important thing is not the liturgy and, and other things but it's living the gospel that sounds like that sounds almost precisely like what luther was saying in the you know early 1500s that you know as he's working through his own questions. So, and there are things that I, I wish we could talk about. Like you, you give a, a, a good explanation regarding the Inquisition, and also the chapter which will resonate with many why reactionaries don't follow the science. And you talk about the backstory of Galileo and Robert Bellarmine, but you. Specifically, one thing that I took notice of, and of course, I mean, as a Roman Catholic, you view the, the Protestant Reformation as generally not a good thing, and that's as should be expected, and I do say that it's a good thing, but you have you surprised me, though, because I, the first time I read something negative, I thought, well, here we go, 
I'm just going to go down the, the, the whole Brad Gregory unintended reformation trail and I need to go ahead and put on my Teflon pants and so you know, get, get, get ready. But you didn't do that. It was surprising and it was delightful. You have wonderful things to say about the Puritans. Now, of course, not embracing everything about the Puritans, but it's rare to find someone who would talk and speak in a positive way about the Puritans. So what is it, how do you come to appreciate people who, who are known as being this, you know, nasty sort of uh, Protestants in New in North America, in New England? It's, I don't want to, uh, I'm not kissing up to you or your probably Protestant listeners, but I, uh, I didn't actually, I don't think I had anything bad about the Reformation in the book. And I specifically omitted a chap. No, no, no. Sorry, I, I, um, my editor inserted a couple of things. He's a he's a friend of mine who's a Catholic, and so he I, I noticed afterwards that he was putting things in. I, it's just not a fight that interests me particularly, uh, because I was I was you know, I was uh, my family were Puritans you know in the 1600s and when they came to New England and uh, I was raised as a conservative Presbyterian. I spent most of my youth uh, in the Presbyterian and, and Anglican churches. And I mean, the people who most influenced my faith are, well, C.S. Lewis, George MacDonald, and G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy, which he wrote when he was still Protestant. So it was, um, and I mean, I love William Law, Serious Call to the Devout Life, um, uh, I mean, George Herbert, I, I could get most of my intellectual influences are still are still Anglican because they're just the people that I fell in love with when I was an Anglican. Um, so I uh, and so and I have a kind of an ancestral loyalty to the Puritans that um, but so I guess to, first of all, to, to answer your but, but it, honestly, most of the reason that I I feel like if I you and I could probably find things that we disagree on, but I think that we would be going out of our way. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that the things that, um, and this is and this is true of the Puritans, is that when the, the Puritans are writing, they're they're not mostly writing about um, how the Catholic Church's understanding of predestination is wrong. This is not something that preoccupies them. So if you if you don't go looking for reasons to argue with the Puritans as a Catholic. You won't find very much because most of what they're talking about is how much they love the scriptures, um, how hard, how, how, you know, what a dangerous enemy the devil is. Um, but it really is actually mostly about, you know, the, how, how merciful Christ is, um, how, you know, how he how he runs to us when we when we when we walk away from him, um, how he never stops chasing us, uh, how beautiful it is to contemplate um, the, you know, the the life of our Lord. Um, it's just beautiful, wonderful stuff. And uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out of my way to praise the Puritans if, if that weren't the case. Um, sure. But I just, you know, reading Puritan writings, sermons, reading Puritan prayers, um, I just love it. And I think that, uh, that, that most Protestant and Catholic writing is this way. It's not, we don't, we don't actually disagree with each other as often as we think because the thing that for the the best i think the best of the of the writers in both of our traditions are not constantly writing about the the tense points of theology they're mostly writing about how much they love god right and uh and and so i just prefer to to focus on that stuff and well and something that i i I interviewed gentleman recently who's done a lot of uh, research on the uh, the political writing of the Puritans. And he maintains that they had, and and he even cites where they referenced Thomas Aquinas very consistently. You know, so they were in many ways, they're much closer. I mean, so he calls them the last, uh, his name is Timon Klein, and he calls them the, the last medievalists of North America. Now, now with that said, I would actually claim another group that you have 
praise for the, the, the Southern agrarians as some of the, the last actual, I mean, it's just 12 guys, but, but, but really, you know, that there's something to be said for not, not the upper class of Southern Confederate society, but the, the small farmers, the, 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 the yeomanry of the South, I think that there's a case to be made for them being a, a, a type of mini residual medieval order. But, you know, you, you talk about the Puritans in that way, and I appreciate your love for them, but you do something that not many writers do. And it is you, you, you contract, well, not just contrast, but you compare the thinking of a group called the Swamp Yankees in New England, which for us in the South, that just means those who stayed conservative and didn't make it to the upper echelons of the WASP society. And, but, but also you, you compare them with those in the South. And you say that in general, you know, a lot of society all, all over the place it, it moved on, but you have a group of people, this kind of tough hickory nut that didn't leave, but continued in their, the beliefs that were handed down to them. So again, specifically in the South, it's the group called the Southern Agrarians and such. So, so, so t- talk about what are the correlations between those in the North and those in the, the South? So in one sense, you're right that Swamp Yankees really are just people who, I guess like my family, who um, whose roots go back in New England, um, but who who did never become wasps as such, who never became Boston Brahmins and um, went to Harvard or Yale or anything. Um, the, the way that historians usually define it, but the, the, and I guess the, the affinity for the South is that the that these are two groups of people who, when they when you ask them on the census what their ethnicity is, they'll say American, because they don't have any memory of coming from anywhere else, right? So if your family goes back far enough um, to uh, to where you don't know if you're Irish or um, Italian or Polish or 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 what. Um, Usually you're a redneck, uh, you know, either in the north or, or in the south, and we call uh, we call New Hampshire the the south of the north. So the um, yeah, so the the reason that there's there's this affinity is because the um, the swamp Yankees and these um, these southern yeomen, uh, when they come from England and Scotland and and uh, Northern Ireland and you know wherever they're coming from, they are. A frontier people, even if they're living on the eastern coast, um, even if they're fishermen in New England, um, they are still on the frontier because there's nothing, there's no European civilization beyond where they are, and so you you do get this this naturally this kind of this rugged individualism where um, you know you're you're living by your own wits, and of course you know helping your neighbor as much as you can, and you need this. This is how localism develops is through necessity of of people that are living um, very close to nature uh, side by side, trying, you know, helping each other as needed or else everyone dies. And so you have this in both the North and in the South, um, you, this, the foundations of the, of these societies are small, uh, small farmers, family farmers. Uh, And then it's only as time goes on where um, the South starts to bring in, um, African slaves to work large plantations, um, and in the north, where industrialism really sort of kicks into gear, that you see this kind of concentration of wealth, this mechanization of of labor, um, and so the worst in both of our economies and our cultures starts to come out, right? The the slave, this the 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 kind of the decadence and. Not to say that you know there's the there's the purely human abuse that goes into slavery, but there's also the decadence that you know that um, comes from a a leisure class that depends on human slavery, like which is why you know you have Thomas Jefferson the atheist the um, the Francophile the Republican who you know really should other 
genetically you'd think would be a you know a high Tory aristocrat, but is actually the most radical of the founding fathers. Also my favorite founding father, but for other reasons. And uh, and then you have in the north you have the kind of um, the stiff uh, mercantile professional uh, class, but. I, this is still a, this is this is the ruling class in both the South and the North, but it's not what most people are, um, and what most people are in the South and in the North are people like the Southern agrarians that you're talking about, and then people like Robert Frost, who's the who called himself a Yankee agrarian when he was talking to the Southern agrarians, um, people who still believe that what America is at its best is you know is the free yeomanry, the the, the small landholders. Um, who are you know who are trying to trying to get by loving God loving their neighbor um, and trying to earn an honest living and uh, and that is the foundations of American republicanism even before the republic is declared yes well I know we're going to need to to wrap up soon so I, I have just one somewhat more lengthy question and then one shorter one but one of my favorite, and the second half of your book, you talk about what are things we can do to practice a better life. And, and the title of this this podcast is called The Good Life because that that's I want to talk to people about things that help us in, in living like that. So what is or what are the patient acts that you talk about? Yeah. I think that the the best thing that we can do with our free time is to create, um, I think what I call in the book, domestic rituals, um, which are these things that we do very slowly and very carefully and very lovingly um, that give our life meaning. And uh, the obvious example is making tea, right? This is actually uh, a, a very common cultural uh, in, in many cultures, the making of tea is something that takes quite a long time because it, it is something that you want to do lovingly and patiently um, to not only to enjoy because it's, it's, it feels good to do things well. It feels good to do things the hard way. This is what the Uber Eats and welfare people don't quite get um, is that the, doing things the hard way is almost always more fun. Um, but also... Uh, because it gives us presence of mind, it helps us to be. Because you know, if you if you if you throw a Lipton tea bag in a cup of water and stick it in the microwave, um, you're not even really thinking about this thing that you're doing. Um, and then the caffeine just becomes, you know, or, or the, I should say the tea just becomes a source of caffeine and warmth. Um, you're not conscious of it. You're not really, and you, and if you're not conscious of it, you can't really be grateful for it. Um, and the, the the real key to happiness is uh, is just being grateful for everything that you can be grateful for. So this is, this, that's really what I mean by the patient arts um, is to just, is just, these are, they're little, they're little rituals, little intentional acts that we make um, that a make sort of humdrum domestic chores more fun, but also um, make us more aware of, uh, of, the th of, of everything around us and all the things that we have to be grateful to God for. Yes. I made a list of those arts at the very end. You talk about gardening, pipe smoking, you mentioned making tea, playing an instrument, writing poetry, telling stories. And some of these I may have added myself. I don't know, but, I, but, but please do. those are all write a whole book. <laughs> well, this is the thing. The, um, so, you know, if you if you go uh, into the history of um, of poetry, I mean, poets today tend to be professional uh, PhDs in literature who work at colleges and they write poetry. But if you look historically, most poets are just are just people who like to write poetry. They, you know, they're they're doing ordinary jobs. And there's this whole movement of poetry during the English Civil War called Cavalier Poetry, um, which are they're literally they're professional soldiers um, who all just enjoy writing mostly kind of body, um, simple, but very, very charming, enjoyable, funny um, poems that they mostly just give to each other. Um, the two, you know, the famous example is um, To His Coy Mistress. I mean, everyone knows that. So, uh, 
so yeah, I mean, just just write a poem. Just you know, get there's a, actually by of all people, Stephen Fry has a really good book on how to write poetry. What's it? Uh, oh, something about ode. But if you just Google Stephen Fry book poetry, it's a really good introduction to writing. You know, traditional forms of poetry that anyone can can do, and it's just fun. Even if you're not good, it's just a lot of fun to do. Yes. Well. So the last thing then, what is the next writing project for Michael Warren Davis? So I am under contract right now for a book called The Times Are Wretched. And in many ways, it was uh, it was inspired by a lot of the criticism that I got for the reactionary mind, because most of the criticism I got was very good and uh, really had I had to take into account the big one being, you know, the the what tim stanley said about you know this is really a christian book dressed up as a, a reactionary book i'm doing these these air quotes again i don't know why and uh <laughs> and so i thought about it and i and i said you know that's actually that's more or less true so this is going so the um the the my new book that my next book the times are wretched is um, is really about um what it means to be a christian in the modern world um as as you know now that it has become clear that you know christendom is 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 dead um and so i don't want to give away too much but it, it was, but there is so the the title the title comes from an, a, a homily from saint augustine where um he's speaking to uh obviously to his congregation who are living through the fall of the roman empire and uh, which was i will say quite considerably larger catastrophe than what we're going through right now as bad as this is you know and so what does saint augustine say you know does he say uh you know you have to we need to we need to spend more time on twitter or we need to vote harder for MAGA candidates in the next election or what saint augustine says is uh, you know he's the, the quote is i can't quote it verbatim but he says something like you know, all of you say the times are bad, the times are hard, the times are wretched. But if you change yourselves, you will change the times. Um, and so this is the this is the probably the greatest church father, right? Um, giving his advice to people who are living through the greatest catastrophe in the history of the world. Um, what can you do? It's you. You can pursue holiness. And there's a lot of books on how we can fix politics, and there's a lot of books on how um, we can get to heaven, but I, I, I just feel like there's this, there's, there's no, there's no book on how by trying to get to heaven, by trying to be good Christians, by being holy, that is actually the only way we can possibly help society. Um, and so I'm actually very excited about this book. The reaction I mind was fun. Um, but I'm very, very excited about this book. So I, uh, yeah, I hope, I hope you. Uh, I hope you and your listeners, if you have a chance to read it, I hope that you like it. Well, I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to it. The reactionary mind was a lot of fun to read. So, um, if you're having even more fun with this one, I'll I will definitely pick it up. So, Mike, I appreciate the time. Again, the book is the reactionary mind. Why conservative isn't enough. But if, if the title bothers you, don't let that. Don't let any listeners. Don't let that bother you because it's. It's a, there's a lot of wisdom here. So, Mike, thanks a lot, and I appreciate everything. Oh, thanks, brother. No, it was great to be here, and uh, I hope I can come back someday. Yes, I look forward to that.